Open your copy of God's Word to the book of James. We started this little epistle last week, and we got through verse 1 last week, but we also went through a lot of other verses along the way. And today, we're specifically going to be looking at verses 2 down through verse 4. And again, that's not a large section, but the things about which it speaks on and the things that we will be talking about this morning are of grave import in our lives and needs consideration. It was many years back in December uh, 4th, actually, December 4th, it was my brother-in-law's birthday, Troy, of 1993, when Lisa and I were uh, attending Denton Bible Church, uh, going to the University of North Texas. Um, we were heading out for a, a small group uh, gathering as a small group party, probably a Christmas party, seeing that it was December the uh, 4th. And li- we had literally, we were ready. We were, I, had, I can remember I had a coat over my arm. It was cold outside. I had keys in my hand, and we were moving to the door um, as the phone started ringing. And I don't know if any of you have had phone calls like this one before, but there are phone calls that that you can get that changes everything. And so I quickly just, I I almost didn't take the call. This was back before I probably even had a cell phone. I can't remember. So I thought, well, if I missed the call, then there's no other chance of getting the call. So I took the call quickly, thinking that it might be a quick hit, and it was my Uncle Lloyd. And my Uncle Lloyd doesn't call me. You know, I mean, you love your uncles, right? But how often do you frequently speak with your uncles? Not often, unfortunately. Need to try to find ways to remedy that. But uh, he starts informing me in very low tones that uh, my, my brother Daniel um, had been in an accident and he was at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. They were not expecting him, him to live and that we needed to get there as soon as possible. And... Um, and we did. We, we made one more phone call to James Skinner, who's Todd Wagner's best friend, by the way, and um, told him that we wouldn't be attending, gave him a quick update, asked him to pray, asked everybody there to pray, and we headed to Dallas, and uh, we got there, and by the time we got there, he was still alive on life support, but that didn't last long. I was able to get into the room, and I saw him, unrecognizable. He'd been run over by a car and his body had swole three times the size that it normally should be, unrecognizable, and Daniel passed away uh, that evening, December the 4th, 1993, at the ripe young age of 19. And um, it's in an instant that storms can come bellowing into life, as you know, and can change things forever. You know, Jesus, when he was teaching in his Sermon on the Mount, was teaching about what it means to live in the fullness of life in his kingdom. And he used a parable about storms in Matthew 7. And in this parable, he talks about two kinds of people. One person who built their house, which was analogous to their life, They built their house on sand, i.e. their life was being built on a faulty foundation. 
They, they were the ones who uh, heard what he said but did not act on it. They rejected the teachings of Christ. And the other in this parable, by comparison, is the person who built their life, their house. It was built on a rock, meaning they were building their life on a solid foundation. Um, and it says they were the ones who heard what Jesus was teaching, but not only did they hear what Jesus taught, they acted on and obeyed the teachings of Christ. And in this metaphor, Jesus uses uh, this storm motif because the reality is, is that storms will come crashing into our lives, won't they? Storms will come crashing into your lives. We were born, if you will, for calamity. We were born for testing. And lives that are built upon the rock, the foundation of Jesus, of hearing his words and of doing them, lives that are built on Christ, the solid rock, after the storms and the rain and all that comes crashing in, it says beautifully in this parable that this individual, their house, their life is left standing. They're left standing. Do they perhaps have a soul wound that they carry with them throughout the rest of their lives in memory of a of a, of a family member or a friend? Of course they do, but they're left standing. And they're still capable of functioning and moving and, and, and having their being and moving about in life. It doesn't become a, a stumbling block perpetually throughout the, the rest of their lives. They are standing in Christ on a firm foundation. The other individual says the waves of life, the storms of life came crashing in and great was its fall. The house collapsed. It, cr it crumbled. There was no foundation and that individual's life was an utter ruin. And in this parable, we are taught a very basic foundational truth that I believe James is kind of dragging into his teaching this morning. The thoughts we have, how we think when the storms of life come crashing in, the foundation upon which our lives have truly been established and built get discovered in those instances, in those moments when everything that went from being normal to being completely abnormal happened. And I'm going to make an assumption that most of you here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. And if I gave you a a platform upon which to share your story, most of you have stories that you could share. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And the good news is that I want to reiterate this morning is that you can stand with your head lifted high, knowing even still, even after the crushing blow of the great um, loss, even after all of that, you can stand tall with your head lifted high, knowing that it's our God who causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. What is it that even allows a person to say such words in light of such tragedy? It has everything to do with your foundation. And when you're founded upon Christ, when you have looked unto Christ alone for salvation, 
God the Holy Spirit upon salvation. You're, you are sealed in Him until the day of your redemption. And you have something happening in you. God's at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasures. Things are happening within you that can cause you to stand even in the face of great obstacles and tragedies. And so I want us to walk through this passage this morning and think very specifically about this because the reality is, is every single one of us in this room today will face other storms. If you think, well, I've been through storms. I just shared one of my storms. Was that my only storm in the past since 1993? Absolutely not. Will it be my, and I'm standing here today, will I face other storms? Absolutely. I don't even know what they are, but they're coming. I have no idea what they are, but they will be there. Same is true for you. So I want you to notice in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, two essential traits that we all need in responding to life's storms in a God-honoring way. The first deals with our attitude, having the right kind of attitude. And secondly, it deals with our perspective of having a right perspective on trials. And James knew that, this, that, that the believers to whom he was writing, we talked about them last week, would need a solid word of truth to help them through times like the ones they were living in. Look at verse 2 with me. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now again, in verse 2, James begins his message to these believers who themselves have experienced great loss. We briefly went through the book of Acts last week and looked at a few passages. In Acts 4.3, there, there was the beginning of persecution. Believers were being put in jail. In Acts 5.40, they were being flogged and ordered not to speak in Jesus' name. These were the first Christians. Acts 7, the first Christian martyr, the stoning of Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, we see the Jewish Christians being scattered abroad because of the persecution that had come. In Acts chapter 12, we see the first apostle martyr, James, not Jesus' half-brother who wrote this epistle, but the other James is put to death by the sword. So the in, these individuals to whom James is writing, when he says to them that they need to consider it all joy, he knows exactly the realities of life that they are facing. He knows that the circumstances that they're facing are not preferable. They're not the kinds of circumstances that you would prefer. They're the kind that you would actually not prefer if, it were given, if you were given the choice. You would actually say, thanks, but no thanks, God. I would prefer these instead. But these were the circumstances that were meted out to them in life. They were very difficult, and James is writing to them, and he's saying to those brothers, you need to consider it joy as you're facing these trials. God's Word speaks the same reality to us even today. Every single one of you will be faced with some sort of trial in this life. And it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you're not going to be able to luck out of this. And so we need to take a sober look at God's Word. This is God's love letter to His church, letting us know that various trials are coming. We need not put our proverbial head in the sand. They're coming in your life. How are you going to respond to them when, the, when those storms of life come crashing in? 
This is real life. This is why I said last week, if you're going to memorize any chapter out of the entire Bible, James chapter 1 is probably the one you ought to memorize because you will use this chapter over and over and over for spiritual strength almost every day of your life without question. We must have clear thinking as Christians about storms in life, and we must accept the reality that trials in this life are inevitable. Now, how many preachers are preaching that as your best life now? I don't know of any. And I'm not trying to be novel. I'm just speaking what comes straight from the Word of God. Oh, and I've also lived 52 years of life. I've kind of lived long enough, and I've observed, done enough just general observation of people and life and how life works to know this is the reality. This is the word. These are the things we need to be equipped with in our thinking so that we can properly handle these things and respond rightly. Our attitude and our perspective can be right, and thus we can honor God through our trials. We can actually consider them as joy, knowing something, and we're going to get there in just a second. Now, for those of you who like to take notes, I've put together four things in particular that um, got reasons why God uses or allows trials in our lives for our good and for our spiritual growth. The first one is to test the strength of our faith. Many of you are probably familiar with this Habakkuk passage. God writing to the prophet Habakkuk tells him that he's going to send the Chaldeans down into, into uh, Israel, and he's going to conquer sinful Israel. And in that process, God is in essence telling Habakkuk that everything that he knows in his, in his existence, that he appreciates and loves and, and cherishes, everything's about to change catastrophically, Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk says this after hearing that, that wonderful news from, from Yahweh. He says, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 19, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive tree should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. In other words, what's he prepared himself for? The reality of what God said is going to happen when he sends the Chaldeans down to judge Israel for their great sin. It's going to be a lot of suffering. He says, yet. Everything has changed for the worse. Yet. I will trust in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I might, you might think that perhaps Habakkuk's faith was being tested to see the, the, the strength and the metal of his convictions that he had in relation to knowing the only true and living God. In 19, the Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hind's feet. Kind of reminds me of the parable. You're standing on the rock and the waves come crashing in. You have to have some hind's feet standing upon a rock, being crushed by waves and, and, and all of that to still be standing. God can make you stand. He said, he has made my feet like hind's feet. Habakkuk is saying, God will make me stand and make me walk on my high places. James is almost going to reiterate this exactly later in chapter 1. And he's going to refer to our great suffering as our high place in God. 
from a human worldly perspective, does it look like that? Not at all. But from a heavenly perspective, the angelic realm looking down and seeing what God is doing in the lives of his children, and they see that God's children, that his grace was sufficient for their time and of that need, and they're still standing, and that God has made them stand, and that believer is still standing, and that believer is still saying, yet I will trust in God. I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Wow. Trials are given to test the strength of your faith. Count on it. And will you be able to say as Habakkuk did, yet I will trust, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Let's pray that it is so in the day of our great testing. Secondly, trials are given to humble us. In 1 Peter 5, 5-11, Peter says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, in verse 6, humble yourselves. This is a work that we are about. It's part of our progressive sanctification. We are to be humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. We see in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient and going all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see in the life of Jesus that humility is equated to walking in obedience to the Father's will. So there should be no surprise when we see Matthew teaching in Matthew 7, those who hear my words but also act on them are the ones who I will give hinds feet to when the waves and trials of life come crashing in. I will make you to stand. And so we humble ourselves, which looks like a walk of obedience to the Lord under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. It's hard, Pastor, exactly. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Do that. We're not saying that these trials don't hurt. We're not saying that these trials don't bring great sorrow of soul. We're not saying that at all. They do. And so we do this. We cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. But we're also, verse 8, we're to be sober in spirit, to be on the alert, because we have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of what? The same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. There's nothing new under the sun. The suffering with which you're suffering, the trials with which you've gone through, my, my brother isn't the only brother who's ever been killed in a car accident. There are multiple thousands of them that have died that way. It doesn't make mine any less significant or any less painful or any less real. But these same experiences of suffering are being accomplished your brothers and sisters in the world are going through that exact same thing. And then verse 10, after you have suffered, after you have, have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will call you to His eternal glory in Christ. He Himself will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
yet I will praise him. To him be dominion forever and ever. And we, as God's people, say, Amen, let it be so. If this is what it takes, let it be so. If in this short, simple time of my sojourning, if this is what, if this is, if come what may, I don't get to make the plan. I don't decide all what happens. I may die today driving home and my sweet wife will mourn my, will mourn my death until the entrance check comes in. Okay? And beyond. Exactly. Just a little humor there because it's getting heavy. That was heavy. I'm sorry. So, to him, our food is to do the will of him who sent us. Jesus said that we just do what he does just a little bit slower. Because he's he was divine, he was God. We're not. But we sure are striving, aren't we? And so this is why it's important to get this right. And we need to allow trials to humble us under the mighty hand of God. Because when we do this, it weans us away from a dependency on worldly things. Number three. Trials are given to wean us from our dependence on worldly things. We see in 1 John 2, he says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Well, if we were to take note of things that we do love, there are things in the world that we love. We just need to make sure that we're not loving them more than we love Jesus. We need to seek first his kingdom, and all these other things can be added unto us. But when the things of the world and the world system becomes a love of ours, something that we truly love, set our affections on, it's a bad thing. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's a pretty simple, straightforward statement. For all that's in the world, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides, lives forever. Trials will be given to humble us under the mighty hand of God, and it will, keep, it will sharpen our focus. Paul said in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly... See here? Sermon within the sermon. Are we eagerly awaiting the Savior, brothers and sisters? Are we eagerly awaiting that? Are, we, are there some things going on in the world that we're kind of really, we, we like these things? Let's not fall in love with the world or the world system or the comforts of the world. Let's fall in love with Christ, remembering right thinking, biblical Christianity. This is, the, this is normative. This isn't some cow, kind of like super spirituality. This is normative. Paul is saying that we have a citizenship. We need to know this. It's in heaven, and we need to be eagerly awaiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven. That's simple. Where's your true citizenship? Don't forget that. Because when the storms of life come crashing in, it's going to be important to remember who you are and who you're related to and the foundation upon which you are standing as you've been listening to the words of Christ and being an effectual doer of them. James also gets to that in chapter 2. I mentioned last week that, they, that a lot of people believe that James' little epistle is a commentary on a lot of the teachings of Christ, right? There's over 20 direct references from the teachings of Christ that James, his half-brother, brings into this epistle and makes application of. 
It's a right straw epistle, as Martin Luther once said. In other words, it's a difficult swallow to take some of the things that James says because he speaks them so bluntly and so assuredly. And then lastly, number four, trials are given to better enable us to minister to others. You've all probably heard of this, 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, going through trials with the comfort which we ourselves received when we were comforted by God. In other words, God will allow us to go through trials in life, and He will keep us standing. He will give us hinds feet to stand, and we will have sorrow, and we will, we will mourn as those who mourn, and we will weep, and then we were, but we're still standing, and then God restores us, and we're standing whole, and then we see a brother or a sister go through a similar trial, and then God can move our lives right up alongside of them, and we can comfort them with the same kind of comfort that we were blessed with when God, by His Spirit, was ministering to us, knowing He'll be doing the same thing to them, and He also brought, oh, people into our lives that did the exact same thing. Thing. So we don't allow our afflictions, our trials, our sufferings to go wasted. We use them as a platform upon which to do ministry and bring comfort into the lives of others. You see, when we truly begin to understand the value of trials in life, that's when we we'll begin to understand why James could say this, that you need to consider it joy when you encounter those trials. They will test your, the strength of your faith. They will help us develop a deeper need for humility. They will wean us away from worldly pursuits. And they will enable us to better minister to others during their Trials and all of this, all of these things are for our good and spiritual growth. And knowing that, that trials are for our spiritual good and spiritual growth, again, this is why it's essential for us to respond rightly to them. It's one thing to do the knowing, it's another thing to do the doing. We must be those who are also doing the doing, that we're doing what Jesus said in Matthew 7, that we heard his words and acted on them. We hear the word of God. We hear the voice of Christ through the scriptures. We don't just hear them and know them. We act on them. And we prepare ourselves to be able to act on them rightly when something tragic befalls us in life. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Elizabeth Elliot said or wrote somewhere that joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. And the idea of the presence of God is the idea of knowing that God is the one who's at work in us during the presence of trials. Listen to this good word from the Apostle Paul. He reminds us in Philippians 2, 13, For it is God who's at work in you, 
both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So in light of that, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the reason why we do this is so that we will prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, that we actually are God's children that were above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Are you starting to feel that creep in on us a little bit more? Among whom you are to appear differently. You're to appear as lights in this world because you belong to God. You're a child of God. You've been saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, lest any man boast. You're God's child. You should appear differently in the midst of a crooked world. And guess what? People in, the, in this crooked world, in this perverse generation, they too are undergoing trials, storms of life crashing on them. They're the individuals who perhaps heard God's word, tipped their hat to it, walked away and said, no thanks, I've got a better way of handling life. And when those trials come, a lot of them wash out. Their lives are utterly ruined. We know them. We've seen them. They're our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends. We know these people. But you, you as God's child, you need to be different. We must be different. And thus we are proving ourselves to be different. We're not grumbling. We're not complaining. We don't talk wrongly when trials come into our lives. We're not talking wrongly about that. We're not saying things like, you know, if God really loved me, he wouldn't be allowing this to happen. I'm so upset. I'm so mad at God. We wouldn't be speaking wrongly about God if we were thinking rightly about God's use and purposes of trials in our life for our good to grow us. You see, this is where we live. (laughs) This is where we live. We need to be holding fast the word of life, Jesus, and the living word and the written word. We hold fast. That's why I always say it. What do the scriptures say? And just do it. Just hold fast to his word. Hear it and do it. See, Matthew 7, that's your foundation. Storms are coming. Are you going to be left standing? It really is that simple, but it's so hard. Isn't it? It really is. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain in seeing you standing firm, running fast for God in His glory. So if trials provide for us a pathway that lead us closer to the heart of God, more transformed into the character of Christ, knowing this should make our consideration of them of greater consolation. Amen? Thus, the ability to consider it all joy when we encounter life's various trials. Now listen, I'm going to say this. I've, I, I wrote this down twice. I'm going to, this is my first time in the, in the sermon. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it again towards the end. This is normative biblical Christianity. This is the way we must prepare ourselves to think and thus react when various trials and storms crash into our lives. This speaks directly to the matters of our heart. Trials will either make you like Job or Job's wife. One or the other. There's not much neutral ground there. I think I'm just going to stand in the middle. I'm just going to get splashed on a little bit. No, it didn't say you get splashed on. It says the waves come crashing in. 
Again, consider, consider it all what, brethren? Joy. And why do we consider it joy? See this word, consider? I'm going to point something out about this word, consider, real quickly, because we've been kind of saying it quickly and moving on to the rest. But this word, consider, is from a Greek verb that has, in the Greek, what's called imperatival force. In other words, it's an imperative. And Greek imperatives are what we refer to as commands within the Scriptures. So when you are going through the Scriptures in the Greek and you see verbs with imperatival force, these are commands in the Scriptures that God by His Spirit put there. Would you think by chance uh, the verb consider here in the Greek might be an imperatival force? I'll t- yes. In other words, God <clears throat> is actually commanding us. <clears throat> He's commanding us on how we as his children are to consider uh, these trials when we encounter them. In other words, to say this differently, not to consider all your suffering and trials as joyful might be what? Sinful. Why? Well, James is going to say, he who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him, it's what? Sin. So when we read the Scriptures and we see that God has embedded within His Scripture, given to us by the Holy Spirit, verbs with imperatival force, meaning they're commands, we see these as commands, and we see them and we choose not to do them, we're sinning against God. You might say God is here commanding us to think certain ways and to feel certain ways about trials. And this is why it's important to know what Scripture says about trials, so that when we go through those trials, we can remember the good that God's going to accomplish in those trials through us, because the, the trial and the suffering itself really, really does hurt. There's not anything joyful in that, but what is joyful is what can come as a result of that from the hand of God, who makes you stand like you have hinds feet. Listen to another quote from Warren Wiersbe. He said, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter and not better. So wrong thinking about trials will only lead us away from growth, will lead us away from the heart of God, will lead us away from the intended image into which He's purposed to transform us, which is into the character and likeness of Jesus, which means the slower we get there, the more, <clears throat> the more trials perhaps are needed to remind us of our need to have a strong faith, our need for humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God. I don't know about you, but I'm just going to run with God. I'm just going to try my best every single time to run with what the Scriptures say and not argue and complain against God for trials, but look in His Word and see the positive things that come from trial while I'm over here grieving and suffering because this really hurts. And I'm going to count it joy that I can grow in Christ's character, in His image and likeness, and that God is making me more meat for heaven where my true citizenship is. You following me? I'm going to say it again. Trials provide for us a pathway that leads us closer to the heart of God. 
more transformed into the character and image of Christ, knowing this should make our consideration of them, of our trials, of greater consolation and giving us that ability to consider it joy. Again, not to do so would be sin. So not only are we to have a right attitude, which we are commanded to do, we also need to have a right perspective on trials. And James veers off in that direction a little bit here. Notice in verse 3, he says, knowing. You do this knowing something. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing carries the idea of having a full understanding of something, that you're, you've comprehended this, you've kind of got your arms around it, you're knowing this, you've comprehended that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So if we're going to have a right perspective on trials in life, we have to think rightly about the trials. And this is where, as I've mentioned, a lot of professing believers struggle the greatest when it comes to trials is not just having the right attitude, which is hard enough in itself, but the perspective that we are to have on them. And instead of recognizing that if we consider it joy, we have a knowing that something good is coming because God is going to be producing that within us. We fail to think rightly, and then we end up speaking wrongly, as I just mentioned, and we blame God for all kinds of things. I've known believers, you have too, who have gone through great trials, and as a result of their great suffering and pain, they abandon God, they leave the church, and they, and they don't don the doors of God's people again. I've known some of those because they've been in my family after my brother died. I've seen it. I've seen the wake of the adversary's lying voice and how it wants to just reverberate over and over. If God really loved you, he wouldn't have let that happen. And so like two people, you have a choice. You're going to hear and act, or you're going to hear and walk. There's a rock and there's sand. God is wanting to produce in you endurance. This is why it says right here, notice, knowing what? What's this say? Right here, testing of your faith. Testing. When you test something, what are you testing something for? Well, you usually test things to see if they work, right? Um, you know, the other day in the garage, I went out there and I put in a new uh, bulb up into the garage door. I didn't just leave without testing it. I walked over to the wall and I hit the switch. I tested it. Is it working? Because maybe I grabbed an old bulb and I didn't know, right? Anybody else do that? Of course, you test things. You do things, you test things. There's a testing of your faith. It's a testing to see if it will actually work. To see if you will actually say, yet I will trust, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, like we said we would to prior to trials crashing into our lives and experiencing substantial loss. So trials are to test to see if our faith works, to see how far we have come and how much we have grown in our walk with the Lord, to see if we have the faith to look beyond the present suffering and hardship all the way to our citizenship in heaven, 
knowing someday that he is making us meet for that very place. And this takes eyes of faith, doesn't it? Doesn't this take eyes of faith? Well, it either takes eyes of faith or at least a willingness to accept God's word at face value, seeing that he has his slave James write it down for us. Brothers and sisters, we need to know this. This touches our lives at very intimate places. This makes or breaks our walk. Notice again what testing is producing and what it's for. The testing of your faith. Knowing that the testing of your faith, God's at work in you to willing to work for His good pleasure and He's producing something in you. He's producing an endurance. Endurance is from this Greek word here, hupomone, which simply means it's a capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. The capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Now think about this. The testing of your faith is producing more of that. The testing of your faith is producing more of that. Why do you need more of it? Well, as I sit here and I look at my brother Royce Wright, having lived a life before God all these years, and I see him here at the end of his life, he has needed more of this in his life right now than he's probably ever needed before. Some of you don't understand the trials that he's been going through over many years and the severity of these trials dealing with a wife with poor health. Why does God test your faith? Because it's producing. It continues to produce this because you might think that God knows exactly what you need in your time of need. So the trials that come crashing into your life, don't run, hide, embrace, weep and cry, but count them as joy because you know God's growing you in your faith to produce spiritual strength in you and it's going to continue to produce more of this in you because it's going to give you a capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. That's what God is doing in you. You might think, as we read in Philippians 2, that God is at work in you to willing to work for His good pleasure. He is. He is. To willing to work for His good pleasure. And so James says in verse 4 that we need to let that endurance that God is continuing to produce in us. Let that endurance have its perfect result. So as God is building up endurance in you, it's going to have a perfect result because He knows, again, He knows the moment in which His grace needs to be sufficient for you in that time of your great need. And His timing is always perfect. Have you noticed? And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking... He says, in nothing. Now, I want to show you this real fast. Notice this. So you may be perfect and complete. Notice this. Perfect is from this Greek word, teleos. Told you God's at work in you, right? Too willing to work for His good pleasure. Teleos pertains to that which is fully accomplished. Or finished complete, 
finished. Why is it God at work in you to conform you more into the character and image of His Son? What's His end game, if you will, for you in your life? Eternity forever in His presence. And He's making you meet for that place. Life is a great trial ground. It's a great trying ground where storms come crashing in. God uses those to produce endurance in us and to perfect us fully, accomplished, finished. Because someday He's taking you home, and that's why He's wanting us to respond rightly to trials so that we can grow as far as spiritual good. We need to know this. And complete, halakhlelos, Halakleros, it's a row, excuse me. Halakleros is a totality with special emphasis upon the entity as a whole. So perfect teleos, complete halakleros. Let endurance have its perfect result. It's doing something in you so that you may be fully accomplished and finished and complete, the entirety of you, your whole self complete. And notice what he says here at the end, lacking in nothing. It seems to me that James has the end game in mind. God is preparing you to be with him in his eternal state forever and ever and ever. And so consider the trials you're going through now as as not much in comparison with the glory that you're going to see when you see Christ face to face. Are you following this? seems that this is clearly what James is is talking about. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. He says, God does not give faith, love, hope, or any grace without meaning to test it. If a man builds a railway bridge, it is that engines may go over it and prove its carrying power. If he only makes a needle, it must be tested by the work it can do. So when God made you to be strong in the Lord... He meant to try every ounce of your strength. Whatever God makes has a purpose, and He will test it to see if it is equal to the design. I do not think that a single grain of faith will be kept out of the fire. All the golden ore must go into the crucible to be tested. Isn't that beautiful. And God is doing that so that He will perfect us, make us complete, looking like His Son, Jesus Christ. His character into His image, into His likeness. Do trials have a significant purpose in our lives? Absolutely they do. So we must consider them joy when we think rightly about them, not speak wrongly about God when they're happening to us as though God somehow doesn't love us. He loves us infinitely. He's allowed them to touch your lives to grow endurance in you so that He can make you perfect and complete in the day of Christ Jesus. Wow. You see, we don't sometimes, we we don't think this way about Christianity, do we? We don't think this way when we, have, when we have thoughts in the night about God and what God's up to in our lives. We oftentimes aren't thinking like this and at this level. And that's why I'm saying that we must be those who have a right perspective on trials, understanding that the testing of your faith, when properly endured, is producing in you a perfecting and a completing 
into the very image and character of your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> what joy. What joy. I'm going to leave us with one more quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. She knows a little bit about suffering in this life. If you're unfamiliar with her, look up her story. I don't have time to reiterate it all here. Quadriplegic from her teenage years, diving off a little wooden dock into a river while she and her family were at the lake just playing. Water was too shallow, went down, broke her neck in a wheelchair, can't move anything from her neck down for the rest of her life. Read her story if you're not familiar with her. She said, God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in inward qualities than outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my character. My wheelchair was the key to seeing all this happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. Hmm. We must be those who recognize what James is saying and what he's going to continue to say in chapter 1 is normative biblical Christianity. And we need to prepare ourselves for right thinking when trials come. You want to be left standing? You want hinds feet? Cling to the Word of God. Cling to the Savior, the living Word and His written Word, the Scriptures. Storms are still coming. It's your choice. Cling to Him and have that foundation. Or not, storms are coming. We need to think rightly in life so that we can be as lights in this world in this crooked and perverse generation and our lives can be used to point others to the only one who can save them from their sins, the Lord Jesus himself. Because that's what distinguishes you from them. Amen? Consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Let's pray.